On today's show, we have novelist Abigail Rosewood. Jessica Fu, Abigail, and I discuss the virtues of buying hibiscus plants from people who unofficially sell them on the streets of Brooklyn. We bring you another rousing author psychotherapy session, Storing Your Past, and how maybe you shouldn't always listen to workshops and or the things that professors say out loud but maybe should not. Bonus, Jessica explores her abiding love and advocation for place as character. Basically, if this episode were a reality TV show, our tagline would be what happens when people stop being colonizers and start getting allowed to write their own freaking stories. Fu, when I sit in your office mm-hmm. and stare up at all these white dude philosophers. <laughs> yes. A dead white dude. They're they're looming. I mean, they're quite literally looming because you have these like three shelves that go all the way up to the ceiling. Mom, hi. Hey, I heard a furry animal. Oh, sorry, I didn't realize I'm already. Hi. Hi. (laughs) Oh, what's your kitty's name? Uh, Moon. Oh, hi, Moon. Welcome to the podcast. Tell your story in five minutes before yes. everything falls apart. <laughs> no. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Yes. Welcome, Abigail, to your We're inaugural... We're early. We're a minute early. To your inaugural podcast. It's going to be so awesome, just like your yes. work. I'm Jessica Cole. I'm Fulu. I'm Kate Martin-Williams. And this is Effing Shakespeare. Bye, writers. For writers. If I Had Two Lives is Abigail N. Rosewood's gorgeously layered and terrifyingly unsentimental coming-of-age story of a young girl born in Vietnam, and it also, it feels impossibly so, her first novel. Many passages so vividly wrought still linger in my mind several days and a couple books later, bright and jarring like that of the burned sugarcane field, but also subtle and beautifully imperfect like that of the botched snapshot snagged in a movie theater. This book found itself at the top of my TBR pile after a satisfying stretch of short novellas and story collections peopled with male protagonists. If I was aching for a female narrator with an unapologetically thick interiority, and an intricate story, I didn't know it, but this novel was the answer to my ache. The narrator of If I Had Two Lives remarks, the first step to remaking yourself is to get away from the person who knows you best, which at first seems a simple aphorism, but reveals itself to be, in fact, the very thing on which the novel turns, and something we cannot fully understand until Rosewood sets about showing us which she does like a storyteller in absolute command of her craft. Abigail, thank you for coming onto the show. Thank you so much for that introduction. My hands are sweaty oh. <laughs> listening to it. I'm like so moved. Thank you. Oh. And I love the details you picked out that I've forgotten that I wrote. <laughs> oh, that's great. No, I, I do. So I mean, from there were several to choose from but that photograph I can almost see it without giving too much away it's a beautiful moment in the book and I I feel like I could find it in my desk drawer it was so vivid but so vividly etched into my mind so thank you thank you for your beautiful book 
Thank you for reading it. How did you know that this was going to be the subject of your first book? Um, I think that I didn't know as much as I was like possessed hmm. to finally to finally have like I think I was at a point where I was finally ready to use words to construct like difficult emotional reality and difficult truth mm. um, for me. And I I had tried writing this throughout my years at doing my MFA at Columbia. You know, I tried it in the third person point of view and then in the second person plural point of view and then oh, wow. from the perspective of, of another boys at the camp that just watches the protagonist comes in. So I would write like little fragments, but none of it would work. So I think, I think at one point I was just ready to, I guess, face my own shadow. Hmm. And was that after you had tried out the first person or did you face your shadow, like you said, and then the first person um, sort I of think, insisted itself? I think the first person was the one that allowed me access Mm-hmm. And that opened up, or like opened up the feelings and the emotions for me. Do you mind reading us uh, an, an excerpt? Yeah, I would love to. I'm gonna start uh, with chapter eight. Kind of, not not in the beginning though. The little girl was in the sugarcane field, spinning in circles. When I was near, she collapsed at my feet. It seemed the clouds themselves were casting a lazy violet on the ground beneath us rather than merely merely reflecting the moonlight. It was my second moon festival at the camp, and I no longer missed the life I had before. It felt as if I had always been here, and always would be. Do you want to hear a story? The little girl asked. Sure. We walked through the field, the thin, long leaves of the sugarcane brushing our hair and faces. I dangled my butterfly lantern in front of us. I pretended we needed it to see the path, but instead of illuminating our way, light from the candle reflected through the red film of the lanterns, sliced our features into geometric fragments. What's that? I asked, gesturing to the plastic bag the little girl was carrying. Oranges is my full moon gift from father. I have always liked the smell of orange. It was the only fruit my mother would peel and feed me herself. I would rest my head on her lap while she dug her fingernails into one and tore off its skin. The bitter and fragrant liquid would splash on my skin into my eyes, but I didn't complain. Those were the few times I wasn't nervous around her. I remember one night when my mother was feeding me an orange and watching television. Gone with the Wind was at the part when a girl stood barefoot inside a barrel of grapes and a boy was kissing up her calf to her inner thigh. I turned my head away to show I wasn't interested in watching, but it didn't matter because the image had imprinted itself onto my mind. Whenever I had the chance to be alone, I would see the girl again, her ankles inked with grape juice. I would rub myself gently at first, and then, not without my consciously willing it to, my hand would work on its own, slowing and quickening until my whole body broke away like quicksand until it no longer belonged to me. 
The fresh scent of citrus made the space between my legs warm. The little girl began her story. Once there was a king who was in love with his daughter. I've heard this one before. It's boring, I said. No, you haven't, she said. He loved her so much that tell me something else. I insisted. For some reason, I became agitated. Once there was a princess who was in love with her father. The little girl began. That's the same thing. I don't want to hear it. I walked on ahead of her. When I looked back, she was spinning in circles again, mumbling to herself. Once there was a king. Once there was a girl. Once there was a princess. I wasn't ready to hear her story that night, or many more nights after that. It wasn't until a year later, when we were lying on an ox cart loaded with green stalks of bananas, and looking at the faint, dusty sky, that she would again try to tell me. We were ten years old. She no longer pretended that her father was a king and she was a princess. No longer told herself that he did what he did out of love. Many times I had seen her gestures, her expressions, both the brief and the permanent, and felt as though she was telling me and not telling me at the same time. Her single act of rebellion was denying his existence, refusing to admit she had a father. When asked if she could come to my previous birthdays, she didn't say, "I'll ask Dad," but simply, "I'll see if I can go," as if she were on her own. Occasionally, though, he would do something to make her happy. Once he gave her a tube of lipstick that had belonged to her mother, whom he claimed had left right after her birth. She cherished it and stayed home for days without going out to play, as a payment for his gift. I thought. Her undulating between gross submission and rebellion confused me. Did she love him or hate him? When she finally came back to me, she didn't bring the lipstick. It's a whore color, she had told me. The flaky skin on her lips still had a maroon stain. Maybe we just got tired of pretending something wasn't there, even though it shrouded everything we touched, followed us wherever we went, and bound us to a contract of silence. Or perhaps she told me word by word what her father did because I had earned it. I'd been at the camp long enough for her to believe I wasn't leaving her. The black shadow that had lurked in so many of our early childhood games suddenly had a name. The child kidnapper, the forest full of bent nails, the little girl's cut. On the ox cart, flies and mosquitoes were buzzing around us, but we were comfortable. We fantasized about how to take revenge. The best we came up with was that lately he had been complaining about sharp pains in his chest. Maybe she could climb on top and fuck him until his heart gave out. I picture myself in this scene often. And relished the face I saw when I looked down at him, fat and filled with blood. I became the little girl, driven with purpose but emptied of feelings. I could not separate myself from her. Her nightmare became my fantasy. Her fury flowed out of me, wet and sticky. The spasm that coursed through me were as much mine as they were hers. The only difference between us was that the subject of her inner life was singular, pointed, obsessive. But I did not know who or what I loved and hated with mirror intensity.
My chest contracted painfully from violent emotions, and I didn't know why. Yeah, if, Abigail, if you don't mind reading the second passage too, that'd be great. When I got home, Lila had already left. I walked to the bathroom. The fog had evaporated, but the nutty scent of the coconut shampoo she had used was still there. On the tile walls were a few long strands of hair. I thought they looked like Lila's, darker and thicker than my own gossamer, but I wasn't sure. I pulled the end of one strand and spun it around my forefinger. My mother's hair, coarse and abundant, was the only woman's hair I had pulled off a bathroom wall. As a child, there had been something for me to play with while I showered. Inside the bathtub was also where I'd cried, knowing that the sound of pouring water would drown me out. After coming to New York, I hadn't been able to produce a tear. In the mirror, my nose and eyes were red, but dry. I smeared water and soap on the mirror, squinted my eyes. If I try hard, I could blur my face and see mother in my own reflection. What do I do? What should I do? I asked her. My had nothing for me to boast about. Nothing I could tell my mother if we ever spoke again. And yet I still held on to this one fact. My inability to metamorphose my feelings into tears, into a navigable sorrow, as if it were something to be proud of. I had fallen asleep with Lila's hair twisted to a nest around my finger. When I woke, most of it had unraveled, lying lifelessly on my chest. The mattress was soaked as though somebody had dumped a gallon of water on it. For a few minutes, I wasn't sure where I was. Then comprehension set in and I gasped, horrified at what I had done. Was I seven again, or was I an adult woman who had just pissed the bed for no good reason? I curled in a ball and laughed into my knees. I couldn't stop from shaking, my own laughter like an ice cube lodged in my throat. Then a hand touched my shoulder. Good morning. I turned my head, shocked to realize I wasn't alone. Lila, she had come back last night. I couldn't look at her, couldn't speak. Her clothes were damp from my urine. She rolled towards me, toward the puddle beneath my body. As she had once done at Crater Lake, she put her around my waist and held me tightly against her. There's nothing dirty about piss, she said. Oh, man, it's so, so good. Thank you so much for, for <laughs> just writing this book. Thank you. <laughs> I really loved the all of the different friendships between girls and and also mother-daughter relationships as well. The stories they choose to share with one another don't uh, desire to protect and or expose each other and a lot of shared coded language. So it particularly resonated with us because Kate and I have been friends and partners in our press and podcast for a long time. And it also, Kate reminded me of this, that another famous literary sister pair current, you know, in the last couple of years was Elena Ferrante in My Brilliant Friend and, and the rest of the trilogy. Did you have their narratives in mind when you thought of your protagonist and the little girl, Lila? Yeah. So what about other mother-daughter narratives you might have 
Yeah, so I I actually love the Elena Ferrante series. And, you know, I kind of named my character as a nod or an honor to hers. <laughs> like one of the characters, Lila. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, that definitely was one of my influences. And then I also love the Agota Christoph, uh, the notebook. That's also mm. about a really intense friend, like friend between actually between uh, bo- two boys two brothers and it's also really kind of stormy and dark and dreamy at the same time mm-hmm. I, I also love the movie labyrinth I feel like that's it follows a young girl's perspective and her imagination as she navigates this landscape of like human horror and war and violence and child abuse and the loss of a parent and and so through her like perspective, you kind of witness, witness this unfolding of a dark fairy tale. Mm-hmm. And I think, like I think in many ways, like children who have lived through violence um, never really had the luxury of being children. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, they can't help but be children. And so, like, um, yeah. So it's like they they have to like make up, you know, through their imagination. Um, to cope uh, and to reclaim their narrative, you right, know, to make sense right. of all the terrible and nonsensical things in the adult world. Um, Which also isn't yeah, so, just a coping mechanism of the children in your story. I mean, the upstairs neighbor grows a forest basically in his bedroom, which is, yeah. you know, this fantastical part of the novel that's also so vivid with actual butterflies and. Tropical plants. Yeah. yeah. It was the same thing, right? That the the coping mechanisms we often adopt as children don't don't leave us just because we've grown up. Exactly. It's funny, I yesterday I just dragged home a, a hibiscus like basically <laughs> a tree a tree. And and I just like I just so strange. Like I saw it, you know, on the street in Brooklyn and um Oh, wow. And I felt like I just had to get it because I just don't <laughs> see the hibiscus flower very often. And I just had to get it. I don't know. I don't know if it's going to survive, you know, in my apartment. It was in the middle of the street somewhere or how, how did it get there? <laughs> I, you, you just saw a <laughs> so, hibiscus uh, tree. You cut it down and you dragged yeah, it so- man he 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 doesn't really he he doesn't own a store but he always has like he always just has so many plants on the street uh, you know i just i just i just got that one <laughs> and then because you know i i you know i told him the story about how i i really love this flower because that i grew up you know like uh, with it around me and so he like gave me two plants to take home so now i feel like i have so, too many plants <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly it's like yeah <laughs> that's amazing uh we just had colson whitehead in town and he did a reading and told this horrifying story about a signing line and a reader came up and asked how the fleeing slaves dealt with all the cavens as if the underground um. railroad was not actually a metaphor yeah <laughs> and so yeah. i i was wondering if you've if you've had similar experiences in in bumping up against real gaps in the american readers understanding of the legacy of the vietnam war or vietnamese history in general and and how do you deal 
Colson Whitehead deals with it by calling them out in giant readings all over the <laughs> all over the country. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, good for him. Yeah. Yeah, um, right? yeah, that's great that he does. Uh, I think. <laughs> oh, I think it's a, a you know this the Vietnam War itself or the American War for some people is this really giant narrative, especially for Vietnamese Americans living here and for, you know, American memory. And so I think like not so much the gap in the understanding, but the assumption that that's all there is about mm-hmm. Vietnam. Like that's all there is that's worth saying or that's worth talking about. And I haven't encountered it as much um, on tour, but I encounter resistance while writing the book. Like, I was going to ask if know, that happened in workshops or along the, along the road. Yes. So I, I, I've been just like straight up told to set the story in Thailand. Uh, why, because why they're the same. They're just kind Yeah. Of, just, I'm like, oh, it was just so shocking um, oh to God. me. In Bombay. Yeah. <laughs> um, because they... It's so random and... It, it's it just uh, you know because I mean their point was that because of the the history was so heavyweight that if I really wanted to be free of that kind of association um, then I needed to set the story somewhere else but that's kind of precisely why I needed to write a book <laughs> that <wanna> be- <laughs> <laughs> just to contribute to the complexities mm-hmm. of you know yeah. in the lives of Vietnamese people. Which this book beautifully does. I I mean, that's the equivalent of your therapist telling you to have a different past. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Right, right, right. That's the great, way right. to get through your shit is to change what actually happened to you in the past. Yeah. So I think I think a lot of people, you know, this per, this professor actually just happened to say it out loud. Oh, it was a I professor. Think, it know. wasn't just a, some <laughs> other student in a workshop. It was actually a professor. Uh, I want to out this professor <laughs> on the air, oh, no. but, 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 but we won't. We won't. We're good people. That's what I want to do. There's a difference. <laughs> yeah, I think it was just his, it was just their very like local way of looking at something, and mm-hmm. you know, I I understood, but I also would never do that. You know. Yeah, so. let, let's set everything in the U.S. where we don't have any complicated history. <laughs> At all. Yeah, zero. We, we've not had a civil war here. Not like an underground railroad. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, my God. Just also such a limited idea of place, you know, because I felt like place is a character um, in your novel, both the camp and Vietnam and New York and Europe and the apartments, you know, that you're uh, not your apartment, but the protagonist and men upstairs. I mean, the place is so important. So mm-hmm. that's like basically cutting out character traits that that make this book so rich. Anyway, we can we can move on. Thank you <laughs> for advocating for it's funny because it's like that I didn't do a lot of precise descriptions of places. I think I just kind of follow like the emotional atmosphere of a place. Mm-hmm. And so when I, 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 you know, I encounter some resistance with that too. It's like, is it really New York or is it like really Vietnam? Like what are these places? And in many ways, I just think like it doesn't matter because it's all seen through, you know, the protagonist's perspective and 
most places are experienced through like our own individual mind anyway. And so like your Houston is not going to be the same as my Houston. Right. Um, and I, I, I have lived in Houston before as well. So. Oh, you have? Uh, yeah. Yeah. What? Yeah. When I first came to the U.S., actually, that was my first landing Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yes. Um, So, this is a sort of craft question, and it started because I read a tweet this morning from Tracy Hunt, who I think she's still a producer at Radio Lab, but it was sort of a silly tweet where she asked, What thing is broken in your apartment that you don't even see anymore, but only get reminded of when someone comes over, and then you have to like quickly explain it? And it made (laughs) me think about novel writing and how you can avoid a certain problem so much in your book while you're writing it that you don't even remember that it's there like a giant swath of bird poop on your picture window <laughs> something like that <laughs> that's that's what I have right now <laughs> that's that's just a problem for real was there something like that in the novel that was just really gnarly and hard to kind of get through while you're while you're writing I mean you spoke a bit to the, the voice choosing whether it's going to be third second or first person but was there something else I think for me, because I, I'm, I feel like I have a lot of emotional self-control in real life that, you know, in fiction, I always kind of have, I'm able to let it go um, easily. So it wasn't, it wasn't, there wasn't anything that I was avoiding, but at the same time, like I have to, when it's like the more difficult a passage is to write the colder I felt as a human being. Like I just, it's like, I have, I have to force myself to become like psychopathic in order to access (laughs) this, like these very difficult emotions. And because I'm like trying to slaughter people, you know, on the page and like put them or, you know, they have to do a lot. Um, And so you kind of, you have kind of have to have both compassion, but also be like a little bit, you know, mean. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> like, like a surgeon, like a surgeon, <laughs> surgical precision. I felt, I, I felt even physically cold too. Like you were writing it, and you got like the shivers. Or something. Yeah, you know, just like just very. Good. Yeah, but I do feel physically cold sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I did write most of this in during the winter, so. It, yeah. I mean, the Montauk scenes were were very yes. chilling. I could yes. completely see those scenes so good. You're so good with rain and snow. I I loved some of the the descriptions of of rain and snow, particularly Montauk. But all yeah, I love I love Montauk. <laughs> You had a lovely review, or the book had a lovely review. You did as well in the LA Review of Books (laughs) by Ryan Smirnoff. And then it got a great write-up in the New Yorker's briefly noted section. For our listeners who are young or new writers and maybe just breaking on the scene, can you kind of demystify for us how things like that happen for debut novelists? Because they don't just happen do they and it's no small thing because no they they definitely don't just happen (laughs) so Europa does a lot of the publicity work Ken Carroll who is my who's the publisher at large and editor of my book he you know I, I think he went to the New Yorker with several Europa novels 
and he just had a meeting with people that he had had a relationship with for a long time. Mm. You know, mine was part of that talk. And so, it, you know, I was really lucky that they decided to write a, write a little bit about it. Mm. In terms of how I review books, uh, so Ryan was actually, so we, we had met at Columbia in my program. We didn't know each other very well, but I did notice that had affinity for Southern Gothic novels. And for some reason, like in the past, anybody that likes Southern Gothic books have tended to like my writing. Oh, and I don't know why. That's really and I just, you know, and so I just remember that. And so I was going to ask, uh, are you from a, a North Vietnam or South Vietnam? I'm from Ho Chi Minh. I was born Ho Chi Minh. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. So because that's interesting because we just had uh, Ocean Vuong come to Houston, and and there's there are several things that Ocean talked about concerning the South, and he being from South Vietnam and the relationship between South Vietnam and the South here, and so I yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, and. At the same time, in in my own sort of memory and, and writing, I, I didn't live in Vietnam for very long. I came here when I was four, but being in the South, family was from Saigon also. So there's elements that I take from South Vietnam and the culture here in the South that I sort of put together. So, hmm. yeah. That's just, ah, uh, that's so yeah. interesting. Well, I'm so glad that somebody else also, that you also feel that because it's like hard to explain, but I think it's that like, that willingness to get dirty and like <laughs> inf <laughs> infection, you know, and like that grittiness. Yes, and yeah. Just like, yeah, lots of like, lots of fluid and like, just like blood and just kind of. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's just messy. that willingness, you know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's that willingness to be very messy is southern. And so I, so that's what I noticed that Ryan had liked. So I, I had contacted several other reviewers that, that I, that I knew of, but it was lucky that he, that he was interested in reading it. Oh, and it's a beautiful write-up. Yeah, it was, it was just a kind of, that, the kind of review that, you know, it, it feels like somebody had completely just understood. Yes. And it's yes. just the most satisfying. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, now I want to go read like Faulkner right at like because it's <laughs> the most recent book I've read, and now I want to actually, you know, have yeah. them merge in my mind in some cool way. <laughs> the other book that we talked about and wanted to reference was the Chandelier, Clarice Lispector. Oh yes, I love her. Yeah, I felt we I read that a few weeks ago again, and and I couldn't get over this like fierce interiority with the female protagonist and and I think it's a messy narrative too like she gets messy too yes mm -hmm. definitely yeah it's and, and sort of fearlessly messy which is really satisfying to me as a reader too so I think yeah chandelier in the first couple of pages of your book oh and that too oh yeah <laughs> yeah I had uh yeah that's crazy that's just like 
subconscious coming out yeah. without me. <laughs> I thought you did it on purpose. No, no. <laughs> I really did. <laughs> I should pay you for psychotherapy. <laughs> <laughs> on this podcast, we do psychotherapy with Africa. <laughs> I would not tell you to have a past. I would tell you to get over whatever by having a different <laughs> <laughs> No, no, no. So we wanted to speak, if you wanted to, about this article that came out on Medium. I forget the title, How to Lose a Third of a Million Dollars Without Really Trying, which has been in equal parts lauded for talking about the difficulties in understanding the publishing world and also excoriated for maybe a sense of privilege and blindness to the to her own privilege at actually having had a third of a million dollars yeah have you not heard that one jess wow that's people are cruel (laughs) like i know yeah seriously especially because she's a woman right and because she's a woman right i mean it's just so much i feel like yeah a lot of misogynistic version takes on that i don't know Sure. And I think, I mean, I think the thing that shouldn't be lost is something that rang true for Jess and me and Fu starting our press and just kind of navigating the industry and how opaque so many parts, especially the parts that have to do with the finances are and can be in, in the roles that publishers play in shielding their authors from that information as a sort of like security, but also the The nefarious things (laughs) that can happen if it does operate in a, in complete darkness, you know? Um, so yeah. wondering yeah. what it was like for you as a writer with a debut novel and a great press in Europa and what sort of experience this has been. How, how long has it been since it came out? Uh, so since April. Wow. A- a- yeah. So only, I guess, yeah, five months. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think like I'm somebody that obsessively like research like what you know, like what anything there is to know about, you know, advance and like how to like, I just, I, I wanted to know how other authors, like what they, what they experience. And so I went in like very soberly expecting nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, I had friends who were like shocked to hear that, like, oh, you know, the marketing like a lot of that kind of like falls on the authors and like the like it's really you're your own like best advocate right and like don't expect for your advance to like change your life and like Mm -hmm. don't like you know and so uh, with that sense like I I tried to do everything I could for the book to succeed without think like basically I just think of it as like doing it alone and then you know once I think like once I was showing that I could do that then the publisher like show more also enthusiasm and support. What did that support look like when when they started offering you some support? So they took me to Winter Institute which is like mm. for Arthur's very big deal you know yeah. it's, it's this one event where a publisher only bring like one or two author um, to to meet with all the indie booksellers 
and then so you you have you like build relationships early on with the booksellers so that you know and that's because they're the ones that really gonna hand sell the book right to the world Mm -hmm. and so they they yeah that was an amazing opportunity for me um that's fantastic. Yeah. But, you know, I was, I think I was very proactive in terms of securing my own blurbs and getting like the people that, some of the people that interview me for some of the book events are like people that I have had relationship with. And so, so it's just like, you have to do a lot of the work yourself. So like, in a way, like I'm sober enough and I, I, I feel bad. I think like, because I also was published with kind of like a artsy art house indie press too mm-hmm. that I never had that feeling like oh this advance or this whatever is gonna change my life in order to like yeah I, I never like squander things because I was I, I'm also like afraid I'm, I'm <laughs> not gonna, like like I'm gonna sorry, go buy a hundred hibiscus trees and <laughs> give me all the hibiscus you got okay I got my advance buddy <laughs> yeah yeah it's so interesting it almost seems like um how it works with with giving you know where the the um the donation is matched right so first it's on the the donor to give or get and then the the organization matches it it's like an interesting way oh like the npr fund drive yeah exactly (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) Which I always feel sort of icky about in Houston because it's always like matched by Exxon Mobil or something. Shell, yeah, Shell. Ah, uh, yeah. So I have good friends who work in oil and gas, but you know what I mean. Everyone does if you live in Houston. Yeah. You can't. Yeah. Yes. Everyone else who are not artists <laughs> That's work right. in oil and gas. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and some who do both. Some we know some is, people who do both. Do. Do paint in the oil. <laughs> yep. Okay, so I wanna I wanna find out. I was doing um, this is researching, not stalking, but I was looking through your Instagram, <laughs> Abigail, and saw like your um, Ashley Mayfair, who you call your sister. I am I assume she's your sister. Um, yes, she's. Yeah, was directing a book trailer for your book, which looked so so cool. How did that yeah, come about? Yeah. Um. So. Uh. So she, you know, Ash is a director, and she her she debuted with her first feature this year, uh, the Third Wife. Before before her movie came out, and before my book came out, I think like as sisters and as artists, we were both very like sort of reluctant to like say anything about each other's work. Like we both didn't know what the other was doing, and I actually didn't show her the book until it was already in its final form. Oh my gosh. <laughs> because I was like in one way like you know that's like I didn't know what kind of movie she was making like I didn't know if it was gonna match my taste or if she was gonna be like some super commercial like person <laughs> but I was like <laughs> <laughs> yeah but fortunately like our taste um, match up pretty, oh man pretty that's, perfectly that's amazing. yeah so after that yeah so after that she after she read the book she you know she loved it and we talked about it and she really she she actually wants to adapt it for a movie <gasps> and so we sister adapt <laughs> oh my god that's amazing yeah well i mean i don't we don't know if when that's gonna happen you know because that's finance but um right. but like sue and i you know before 
before everything came out, like I never even consider. I was like, oh, like she won't get it. You know? <laughs> now, I, now I feel like she's the only person that could actually make it. Yeah. Um, the funny, like, kind of strange thing about uh, collaborating with your own sister is that you know, like, she had sort of uh, written a, a draft of the of the adapted screenplay, and I read it. And so, like, the character, what she's what what she makes the character say, a lot of that is like her perspective of like what I actually said when I was young and not what the character said. <laughs> oh my god. And so like there's there's a, this like weird mesh of like you know, her perspective on like my childhood and then like the fictional version of her perspective and fictional version of my perspective. It's very it's very interesting. Yeah, it's, it's so schizophrenic. <laughs> This is yeah, way yeah. above my psychotherapist pay grade right now. So. <laughs> did you edit her? Did you? Did when she was she open to edits? <laughs> um, I actually thought that it was. I, I thought it was perfect. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, I thought it was. It was so good, and she, she, she really. Do you know? Because a movie, I think, is only eighty-five pages of uh-huh. script, uh-huh. and uh, and so there's a lot of trimming and she has already cut out m- most things that were that couldn't be included visually wow um, i want this to but, happen there needs to be there needs to be a giant kickstarter campaign this sounds amazing <laughs> yes. but i'm really excited for the trailer oh, that's so cool we are too Okay, so the last category is esoterica, and this season's category is opposites. So we have a few quick round questions for you to answer as succinctly as possible, which is impossible for most of our writers, but you can give us. us. For us. <laughs> and us. And let's, us let's just tell it like it is. <laughs> Okay, so we found out, and Fu doesn't know this, but we found out that you also do woodworking and really? that you work in Walnut, which is <laughs> which is what Fu works in. He made my dining room table out of Walnut. And so I saw Aww. your she has she has this beautiful unfinished walnut table. And so oh, that's, my, it's finished now. That's where I'm sitting at now. Oh, <laughs> yeah. But is that? Yeah. But the, was the edge unfinished? Did you leave the edge unfinished? Like, uh, what do they call it? Yeah. Raw edge. Yeah. Yeah. We we live edge. Live uh, edge. That's right. Yeah. It's yeah. Beautiful. It's gorgeous. So yeah, I wouldn't say that I'm doing woodworking per se because <laughs> I don't. I wouldn't claim that because so many, you know. <laughs> well, it's a beautiful table, and I wanted to ask. It inspired my first question, which is. What do you love about word smithing, and what do you love about woodworking, which appear to be opposites, but I suspect have some satisfying doubling, just like in your novel? That's a good question. I think I love that with wood, like, the more you sand, the more kind of the beauty of the wood comes out, and the more it reveals, but it's already there. Mm. You just have to sand it you know, so that you can eventually see it and enhance the look and the the grain and the pattern. But everything that you need is already there. And I think it's the same with writing. Is like when I sit down, it's kind of just there 
to sanding, just approaching, you know, that kind of, but I, I really, I think of writing is like sitting down to like, to pray or to serve like a, you know, the creative God, like, I feel like all the materials is there. I just need to catch them. <laughs> Oh, you know so good. <laughs> I'm gonna try to think of that the next time I sit down to write <laughs> what's the best thing about having your debut get such great reviews the worst thing um I think I mean it's just amazing that you know something that like came from you know, your thoughts are sitting by yourself while you're like brushing or while I'm brushing my cat at the same time. Like, I, it, it's just amazing that anybody would read that, you know, and like yeah. to go as far as reviewing it is, it's, uh, it's a huge honor already. Like I, I felt like I wasn't really writing a relatable novel in the sense of like, I felt like the experiences that the protagonist went through was not really I don't know. I, I was worried that it wouldn't be relatable, but mm. I was really happy to to see that despite that, people still connected to it. And I think the actually my first ever like first ever public review, uh, official review was actually very kind of bad. I think it was from Kirkus, and I was just devastated. You know, it was a short review. Oh, geez. I think. Yeah, so I was I was just so devastated because the first ever, you know, as like debut Arthur. So I was so scared that that's it. Like that's just gonna that's just gonna start like this ripple effect of like horrible reviews. <laughs> like I think usually the publishers send their book to I mean send yeah, send their, their novels to people that they whose taste they know well. But I guess this time like it just something was not matching. So huh. yeah. And I was when that happened, like you know, when it came out, like everybody was just silent. Like my, oh, no. my publisher, my agent, like everyone was just silent. Like not nobody said anything about it, oh, no. which I appreciated. What can you say? Right, that's not good. But it won't be the last review, and it wasn't. Thankfully, yeah. yeah. What's the uh, What's the best thing about being a working writer in? NYC and the worst thing I think the the best thing is probably being like having your ambition constantly sharpened and constantly honed by the ambition of other people it's like mm-hmm. relentless mm-hmm. always kind of reminded that like there's there's more work to do so it's mm-hmm. it's hard to for me personally I think it's hard to procrastinate for too long because I you know there's always something you want to achieve and in that sense like I guess it's kind of like greedy too (laughs) but (laughs) yeah that's kind of the worst thing about it too (laughs) is like just that it's just endless and um and there's so much it's it's also a really lonely place I find because it is crowded but I find it lonely so I think but I think I'm always going to feel that way, like no matter where I write. So, yeah. Well, Abigail, thank you so much for coming on the show. We so appreciated it. And we were honored to be your, your first podcast place. Yeah. This, thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. Effing Shakespeare is a production of Bloomsday Literary in association with Houston Creative Space. 
hosted by Kate Martin Williams and Jessica Cole, and produced by me, Fulu. Our trusty and hardworking intern is Natalia Pomeroy. As always, subscribe, rate, and review. Yep, yep. Evangelical Theology by Barth. Karl Barth. German. White oh, German. Oh, Barth. White German. Thomas Merton. At least he's a spiritualist. He's a mystic. Merton, is that German too? Or what? is he American? He's American. He's white. He's white. white. Yeah, all these white guys. That's all my... Most of my graduate education. I'm already almost sitting on a footstool, and and now I feel even. Tired. And you have Aristotle looking at you too. The pupilless Aristotle okay. with his resting bitch face. <laughs> 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 uh, Sue says this is still too long. <laughs> <laughs>